Hi, this is David Mish. I'm a screenwriter. I wrote for Mork and Mindy, The Muppets Take Manhattan, and Saturday Night Live. And you're listening to the Then Is Now podcast. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at GetDeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You could find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers Series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash havenpodcasts and patreon.com slash thenisnowpodcast. Enjoy! What kind of a sick school is this? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. <laughs> I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty then. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Stand up to my little friend. I love to celebrate plum in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I've got a crap on your deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A dynamite! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have a hole. What? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Come to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Oh. Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and 
welcome to another great episode of Then Is Now podcast. I am your host, Rigor. In previous episodes, we've discussed exploitation films, which are films intended to attract an audience by means of its sensationalist or controversial content, usually attempting to succeed financially by exploiting current trends, niche genres, or lurid content. Exploitation films are generally low-quality B-movies, quote-unquote, that sometimes attract critical attention and cult followings. On episode 39, we interviewed Eric Eichelberger, who was producing a documentary on such films called Exploit This. Also joining us today is a man named John Johnson, who has worked in the industry on several exploitation films and has had a fascinating life and made some great friends as a result. So sit back and enjoy an interesting and offbeat episode of Then Is Now. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play and have fun now. Okay, folks, you are in for a real treat today. Folks, our guest today has been composing and recording electronic music since 1976 under different names like Industrial Espionage, Microdot, Space Rust, and has collaborated with e-music bands like Dazong, OAP, Zed Chromosome, and Stoner Jazz. And I'm sure I destroyed some of those names, and we'll get into that. Hey, you were closer than most. <laughs> <laughs> He started in 1980, first as a New Age music critic, then as a film critic from 85 to 93. In the late 80s to early 90s, he was a member of Jocko's Breakfast Club, which was headed by cowboy actor stuntman Jock Mahoney, who was most famous for playing Tarzan. There he met such greats as John Agar, Gene Autry, Pat Buttram, Pierce Lydon, Robert Clark, and many others. He wrote for Fangoria magazine for a couple of years, then decided to work inside the industry, and from about 1990 to 96, he worked as an assistant sound effects editor with Emmy-winning effects editor Colin Muat on such films as Mermaids, In the Mouth of Madness, and Dracula Dead and Loving It, just to name a few. In 1994, with absolutely no experience in TV, he created Dumpster Peace Theater, a weekly live broadcast showcasing bad horror movies he supposedly found in the trash. At the same time, he was also in the thrash punk metal band Scarred for Life, making them the only such band to have a live TV show to boost their audience. In 1996, he worked with legendary exploitation film director Ray Dennis Steckler for three years on several projects that were only supposed to last a few weeks. Not only does he currently continue to make e-music, but he also runs the fantastic and informational Facebook page, Cult Film Corner. Now that's cult and corner with a K. He was an extra on the Ramones' substitute video and was a crew member on Bad Religion's Streets of America video and their walk video as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show a man who has some great adventures and encounters in his life, and we are happy and fortunate to have him with us today, John Johnson. Well, uh, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that, Roger. You make me sound like somebody important. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so happy that you could be with us today. You know, we've got a, a ton to talk about. Oh, yeah. I had adventures, so I, I'm about at the point in my life where I'm willing to share most of them. <laughs> excellent, excellent. 
So, John, with my new guests, I always start the show by asking you to tell us, you know, where you're originally from and how you got onto the path in your life. Well, I grew up in the, the high desert in uh, Southern California. That's uh, north of uh, Los Angeles. And there really wasn't a lot for kids to do. You know, we could go out and play in the desert for a while, but that, that gets hot. So I grew up watching television. Uh, my parents used it as a babysitter. I uh, started watching stuff like cartoons and later on movies. And I'd say by the time I was 10 or 12 years old, I started paying attention to the things that I'd liked more than others. And in cartoons, uh, there was the master, Tex Avery. That was one of the first names that I remembered and recognized because I liked the insanity of his cartoons. Oh, yeah. And uh, that uh, later uh, uh, bled over into when I started watching the movies on TV. I loved the horror movies because uh, we had uh, Jeepers Creepers out here uh, on Channel 13. And, oh, yeah. And uh, Chiller and Strange Tales of Science Fiction. So there was a lot of it out here. So I, I got into that and... My love of movies uh, started becoming an obsession. You know, uh, I, I started liking people like Ray Harryhausen, uh, a name that uh, wasn't very well known back then, but now he's he's a legend. Right. So uh, it, it's amazing what just paying attention and watching a few things led to. Now I never would have thought that I was going to write for a, a newspaper or anything. I was a photographer, uh, a photographer in the Navy. So uh, I thought, well, I stick with that. But when I got out of the Navy, I couldn't find any jobs because uh, uh, the climate wasn't really good for non-era veterans. So uh, I just decided to throw caution to the wind, and I started writing in 1980. And without really, you know, I had journalism class for a year, and so I knew that. But uh, that's kind of what led up to it, just this interest in movies. I lucked into a few jobs, and uh, uh, that's kind of the way I, I let my whole career run is just following it uh, uh, without any clear direction, I would say. Right, right. And so um, can you tell us about your composing your electronic music? You kind of started that in 76, right? Uh, yes, uh, early 76. I uh, ran across a guitarist who just bought himself uh, what was new at the time, an Echoplex which was a, uh, an echo machine that had a sliding head on it. So uh, you could make these loops with it. Uh, Robert Fripp uh, uh, from King Crimson uh, later became really good with that. So uh, he was oh, yeah. playing his guitar, and I was playing a recorder, and we were doing all this spacey stuff. And I thought, well, this is, this is fun. So when I came back to California in the uh, uh, 76, I started uh, uh, getting a few instruments, a little these touchstone things that would make uh, uh, electronic noises and, and just started out with making noises and, and things. And then it later on do, led to kind of music. Uh, my stuff is uh, admittedly a little abstract. Uh, some people look at me and, and with a great big question mark over their head going, what is this? <laughs> but uh, uh, it's, it's purely uh, just something I uh, did as a lark and uh, that I had, people actually listen to it later uh, still amazes me that's interesting. you never know i know and we're going to get into a lot of the people that you met but did you ever get a chance to meet giorgio Moroder? uh no darn it and he would have been an interesting person to meet because he was one of the first uh, guys to really start using uh uh, uh electronic music uh, and techno beat in particular 
in right. movies. His uh, soundtrack for uh, Metropolis, for instance, was uh, very, very interesting. So that would have been a, a, a nice guy to meet. Yeah, yeah, because he did a song recently. Well, recently, it's probably like five or six years ago now with um, the, the band Daft Punk. And in the song, he sort of uh, explains how when he first started doing his music, he was living out of his car. And then he he the same thing you just said. He would play around with the um with the instruments and the and the and the devices and try and get what kind of sound he could get. And then he would just go to these disco clubs and start playing his music. Wow, <laughs> that's that's really actually a good way of doing it. Now, uh, we took our uh, electronic shows to a couple of coffee houses here locally in the in the valley, and uh, we got pretty good reaction to it because it was kind of a hip crowd. But uh, there were some places where we went where uh, they pretty much told us to pack it up. But uh, uh, we were, you know, like I say, uh, abstract, uh, no lyrics to speak of, and hardly any beat. It was mostly uh, free-flowing stuff along the nature, early Tangerine Dream, stuff like that, oh, nice. which is a major influence for me. Oh, yeah, I love Tangerine Dream. I, my favorite is Le Parc, which they used as the Street Hawk theme. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. why I have the sing- I have the single from Street Hawk somewhere, seven inch single from Germany. I don't know how the heck I ran across that. Nice, yeah. I have that on audio cassette. I think it was the 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 album was called Le Parc. I think too. Yeah, the good old cassettes. Yeah, <laughs> they last forever as long oh, as they yeah. don't your machine don't chew them up. Right, right. Uh, unlike the uh, the A tracks, which I remember taking my my parents' old A tracks and then shaking all the magnetic particles out of them after a while. Yeah, there we go. That was about it. Uh, uh, you could almost count on, uh, well, around here in the desert, people have a tendency just throwing crap out the window, which is kind of annoying. Yeah. But uh, back in the 70s, you would see eight tracks and the tape uh, scattered among the uh, uh, sagebrush and stuff like that. And I was like, <laughs> oh, geez. You know, but but that, was, <laughs> that was the nature of tape. That's hilarious. You know, people get yeah. pissed and throw it out the window. Right. <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit about, um, in, during your punk rock days, about how, how you got onto the Ramones video? Uh, well, I, I knew this guy. He kept, uh, well, I'll start with, uh, we had the most perfect creative freedom when I went and took care of my uh, grandmother's property uh, out in Palmdale, California. And we called it Brown Acres because there wasn't, I don't think, a single blade of green grass on it. It was just all uh, overgrowth. <laughs> But we had a, a, a barn that we converted into a studio, and I had all kinds of musicians come over and uh, use it as a practice place. And uh, one of them was a fellow named uh, David Bragger. And uh, uh, we became good friends, and he started working with Bad Religion because he, he knew uh, Greg, Greg Graffin. Yeah. So uh, he asked me to go to the set one time because he was going, he was uh, filming. Uh, secondary 16 millimeter camera on uh, the infected video that we shot out. Uh, oh, a desert spring, way desert center, almost near the Arizona border on the 10. And uh, that's where I met them. And uh, he later directed uh, the three that I worked on: uh, Walk, uh, Streets of America, and Punk Rock Song. And uh, I was actually an extra in uh, Walk. Uh, so if you see a, a a guy with long hair to his shoulders carrying a briefcase in a business suit, that's me. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I didn't get any close-ups, <laughs> darn it, but uh, who needed that anyway? So, right, right. But but that was, once again, uh, uh, lucking into a situation, uh, and it worked out really well. Uh, I was location scout for Streets of America. They filmed it here in my hometown. 
and uh, it was just a matter of going up past the old gold mine and uh, finding a, a spot in the empty desert. And uh, they, they hung up some uh, racks of uh, fake meat and had the band uh, do their thing in front of it. It was very interesting. That's amazing. That's amazing. And did you get to hang out with a lot of punk bands back then? Uh, not really. Not as not as many uh, famous ones as uh, as you would think. Uh, being in that circle, uh, I did get to meet all of the members of X. Uh, ironically, at the uh, screening of their movie, uh, The Unheard Music, it was uh, uh, premiered at the uh, Cinerama Dome on uh, Sunset Boulevard. And uh, I got to meet them and I chatted with Billy Zoom for the most part. Xene and John Doe were just crowded. But uh, Zoom was a very nice fellow. And uh, I had known him from, uh, he, he worked with a band called the Rockabilly Bastards before uh, X became popular. My friend Johnny Legend was a part of that. Oh, wow. And he was on the uh, soundtrack for a movie called Teenage Cruisers. Nice. Did you ever which get a... uh, Johnny had directed. That's awesome. Did you ever cross paths with the Misfits? Uh, only at the Fangoria conventions. We'd see them there because there's hardcore horror fans like uh, uh, most of the crowd I was hanging around with. Right. And uh, uh, our guitarist, uh, Dean Matherly, who was also a uh, uh, special effects man, he uh, worked on uh, Mars Attacks and Outbreak for films like that. Oh, wow. But he lost patience with the industry, kind of like, what I did, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, he he uh, uh, palled around with them all the time. So I met a couple of them informally and kind of briefly, but uh, oh, Dean hung around them a lot. Right. Yeah, they're nice guys. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Yeah, um, I liked what they did. Uh, I uh, you know the shock rock thing, which is kind of what we did with Scarred for Life. Uh, Dean wrote a song called "The Brain Who Wouldn't Die" from the. Uh, from the movie of the same name. And, right. And I was very envious of that because it was a good song. I said, damn it, Dean, you beat me to it. So, <laughs> so I wrote bugs about giant insects attacking. and So uh, I got back with him on that. But the, it was a, a good rivalry. We had good rapport with that band. That's good. And we scared the living crap out of just about everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, yeah. the, the Misfits did the John Agar song, right? I believe they did. Yeah. I believe they did. Uh, we mentioned Agar in uh, Bugs, uh, where in the chorus, uh, 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 we're going to have to call uh, on help and we'll even uh, call uh, Captain Clark or even Colonel Agar. So that was kind of like our little, uh, oh, damn. <laughs> we had a pretty good music video for it. It might be on dumptv.com, but I, I don't really recall what's on that. Okay, yeah. I, I didn't see it. I was looking at your website the other day. I'll have to check it out. But... um. You know, when you and I, speaking of John Agar, you and I were talking about off mic about the um, Jocko's Breakfast Club, and I, I want, I, I gotta know about that because it, when you described it to me, it reminded me of the Friars Club in New York, except you know with actors instead of comedians. Can you tell us about Jocko's Breakfast Club? Well, I got into that uh, quite by accident. Uh, a friend and fellow film historian, Jan Henderson, uh, I. I had corresponded with him. I watched uh, his bands uh, on the sunset. So he said, "Hey, why don't you come and check this out?" And uh, so I, I went there, and uh, uh, among the first people there, it was uh, John Agar, uh, Gene Autry, and Pat Buttram would always come in about ten o'clock in the morning, and they'd say hi to everybody, and they'd go to lot to the uh, the bar in the back end of the uh, uh, breakfast area. 
and uh, sip tequila at, at, at 10 in the morning wow. and uh, until their doctors told them not to, and then they did it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was nice. I, I, I got to know Pat really well because uh, I started working for him. He had a, a TV station up here in uh, uh, it was Victorville, uh, and he called that, and I would uh, give him uh, video footage of different things happening, you know, news items, things like that. So uh, I got to work with Mr. Haney, which I got a big kick out of. Uh, but on any given day, you'd never know from week to week who was going to be there. Uh, Gene and Pat were always there. Uh, John Agar was there. Uh, when I got to know Robert Clark, uh, I started bringing him over. And then he'd bring some of his friends like uh, Ewing, Lucky Brown, and uh, guys like that. Wow. And then there's the old cowboys like Pierce Lydon, Terry Frost, Don Durant, uh, uh, Richard Webb, who was uh, Captain Midnight on TV. Oh, wow. Uh, I brought uh, uh, Michael Berryman in for a couple of them, and he fit in really well because he had this really nice cowboy hat that he wore in public. And, and between the cowboy hat and the sunglasses, nobody really knew who he was, which uh, helped a lot because he's kind of a singular person. Right, right. But, uh, but it was amazing, some of the people. I mean, I could I could keep on rambling. Denver Pyle, Richard Farnsworth, Archie Armstrong, wow. John Russell. Andrew Prine. I mean, it was it was just amazing the people who would come there, and it was very very informal. We'd just sit there and and uh, have breakfast, and uh, Terry Frost would bring in his mandolin sometimes and sing uh, uh, dirty songs he used to sing in a whorehouse that he worked at <laughs> when he was a kid. So uh, so it was reasonably entertaining, and you never knew uh, uh, what was going to come out of these guys' mouths, and uh, it was it was just a kick. That's amazing. That's amazing. And what was Jock Mahoney like? Jocko was, uh, Jan, I, I think, put it best. He was he was the biggest leprechaun that we ever saw. <laughs> that guy, he, he would do anything for a joke. Now, one time, uh, he came in, he had his big hat on. Jocko's kind of tall, a little over six foot. And he walked into the, uh, into the place where we were at, and he... Uh, stopped at this one uh, uh, table where these people recognized him, and he looked down at their breakfast, and he goes, oh, that looks really good, and he started picking up stuff off of the plate and eating it <laughs> and, and running his hands in the eggs and stuff. And these people just had the, the, this look of shock on his face, and then he called the waitress over and says, listen, give these people whatever they want. But that was Jocko, man. He, he was uh, an imp. There's no other way of putting it. He had a, a very wry sense of humor, and was not afraid to show it. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. These it was when these guys got together and just you know had a couple of cups of coffee and just started getting loose. They would just tell all of these uh, stories. Uh, Jocko worked with the Three Stooges for a while. One of my favorite Three Stooges is the one where he's the singing cowboy that keeps tripping over his guitar. Oh yeah. It was a perfect uh, uh, showcase for his comedic talents as well as his stunt work because he was a stuntman for the longest time. Right. But uh, uh, he, he was just he was an amazing fellow, and people just loved him. And then I think it was in 90 or 91 he moved up to Washington State, and uh, uh, he, he, he didn't last very long after that. He, uh, he found out that uh, Lee Van Cleef had just died, and, and he was racing back to California to attend his funeral and had a heart attack on his way. So oh my God. Jocko kind of, yeah, he, he uh, passed on and 
you know, a lot, almost all of these guys are gone now. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with very few exceptions. I think John Locke is still around, fellow who was in Highway Patrol. Right. But uh, Dana Andrews, uh, yep. Barnsworth, Sunset Carson, Lash LaRue, yep. they're all gone. Pat Buttram, R.G. Armstrong, yeah, they're all gone. Yeah, it's a shame because those guys, they, they were funny. They were really funny and, and just nice. What I liked about these guys is they were down-to-earth, real people. Right. They they weren't in the big limelight anymore. They had their reputations behind them, and, and they were just good old boys. And, and it was refreshing to be around them. It really helped with my, because when I first started working with the Valley Press and getting interviews, you know, you, you, you meet some people and you get a little starstruck and you try not to uh, let that interfere with your work. But being around those guys just, I mean, I got rid of all of that in a heartbeat. It was just, it worked out really well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's funny because I have another show called The East Meets the West and in that we talk about um, Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Westerns. And we just covered the last episode was um, uh, My Name is Nobody with Terrence Hill and, and Henry Fonda. And R.G. Yeah, Armstrong was in that. Yeah. And uh, it was just funny because R.G. Armstrong, to me, he's always been the um, the sort of quasi-evil sheriff from Race with the Devil, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I just found that on Blu-ray. What a kick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you'd hardly – I mean, he could play a bad guy really well. Uh, one of my favorite roles uh, where he's a good guy is in El Dorado. Oh yeah, uh, he, he's he's the good rancher in that, and that's he's right. really really good in that. And that's the the R. G. Armstrong that I knew. He was a really earthy, just a, and, and most of these guys were cowboys anyway. That's kind of how they got into the business. They could ride, so yep. they were put in westerns, and it, and it made sense. But what a nice man! Yeah, he. Uh, most of these guys, you know that. They have a certain reputation. You meet them and go, well, that takes care of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now, some rumors just don't apply. That's funny. So, no, I don't know if this is something that was more true, that is more true today than it was back in the day of um, Jocko's Breakfast Club, but did John Agar really realize how beloved he was as a B-movie star? Uh he did in some degrees. What was really interesting was in, I think it was 1990, I was just starting to work for Fangoria uh, with uh, when Peter Orr was the editor, who was like one of the best editors I ever worked with. He was a very understanding, right. a very easygoing guy. And he knew that I knew John, and he asked me to uh, uh, bring him over to the, uh, to the Fangoria con they were having that year. And they made him part of a panel for where... Uh, he was going to be talking about 50s movies. Candace Hillegoss was going to be talking about the two films she did in the 60s. And then there was Gunnar Hansen on this little three-table panel. Wow. So uh, uh, I brought John in. He brought his family uh, along, uh, or his uh, younger son, M.D., and his family. And that was really cool to see because after they had this talk and everything, and they went to their separate tables for autographs, John's line was two or three times longer than Candace and, and Gunners put together. Wow. And that surprised me. But John hadn't been in public before, so everybody was rushing to his table. Yeah. And and here his his two grandkids get to see uh, Grandpa as a star. And I thought that was really cool. That's awesome. That's a, uh, I totally wish I could have met him, you know. Uh, he was a very nice man, just very, very quiet uh, uh, and... Uh, 
very unassuming about uh, what he did. You know, uh, when I first met him, he said, oh, you're one of my favorite stars. And he, he uh, held up his hand. He goes, oh, hell, I'm no star. I, I was just a working man. I worked <laughs> with a lot of stars. You know, and they'd start naming John Wayne, Henry Fonda. But right. he never saw himself as a star. He was a working actor. Wow. And, uh, and that's what he, what he liked. Oh, one thing about the autographs I should tell you is uh, back uh, in the, I think it was in the early 70s sometime, Corey Ackerman of Famous Monsters uh, wrote an obituary for John in one of the magazines. And one of the, uh, one of the kids that came up asking for his autograph had copies of that magazine. <laughs> so he kind of like, he goes, hey, John, take a look at this. And, and here he is signing his autograph on his obituary. <laughs> and I think he must have signed over a dozen of those copies. That's great. Oh, man. Oh, yeah, it's just, uh, uh, it's being in the right place at the right time. I'm glad I was able to to bring him in and, and be his liaison like that, because that was the first time I got to see what his what his fan base was and, and what they meant to him and what he meant to them. Uh, I, I just, it, it opened my eyes. It was like, wow, you know, this... Uh, this man who really hadn't, you know, he was in uh, Miracle Mile and Nightbreed, a few modern things, but most of these were from older films and uh, a lot of kids, you know, uh, that, who grew up on, uh, watching Tarantula and the Mole People. Right. They, they just they just loved him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, who doesn't remember John Agar? You know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting and, and almost sad in a way that he didn't regard himself as a star because in our eyes as the fans, he is a star, you know. Yeah, and and uh, that was the one thing that really amazed me about him and some of the others. Uh, Robert Clark was the same way. He he worked at uh, RKO in the beginning. He worked with Boris Karloff twice, and he was really proud of that. Uh, but he was one of the guys that kind of grasped his career uh, and uh, kind of appreciated what it was. Uh, some of those cheap old fifties, uh, uh, well, hideous Sun Demon, for example. Oh yeah, yeah. Not the greatest film on the planet, but it is eminently watchable. You can, I mean, repeat viewing is almost mandatory with that. It's it's a hoot to watch. Oh yeah. But uh, when I met Robert, he was working at a bank in Encino, uh, and uh, he had no idea that uh, uh, people wanted to, to see him or there was anything uh, with these conventions. So I, I told him to to hook up with my friend Eric Caden, who run the uh, Hollywood Book and Poster on uh, Hollywood Boulevard. And uh, uh, he would go to conventions, and he was signing Hideous Sun Demon uh, uh, 8x10s. They were just flying out the door. Wow. So it was, it's nice to see that you know, all these guys that paid their dues, you know, if they, if they wait long enough, it comes back. It right. comes back to them. And it was really nice to see. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I remember seeing him on an episode of Knight Rider, and I was going, it, it took me a little bit, I'm watching it going, I know this guy, I know this guy, and then I realized, oh my god, he's the guy from The Man from Planet X, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's funny, and uh, uh, in the 60s, now here's a couple of uh, interesting things, in the 60s, he he was married to Alice King, one of the King sisters, Yeah. and uh, the King family had a very popular TV show in the late 60s, uh, there's the King family variety hour, something like that. But uh, Bob was on there uh, singing along with the family. Yeah. <laughs> and when he wasn't on that, he was, uh, I think he was in three different drag nets. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, and those are fun. I mean, he was he was the in one of what we call out here the drug nets, uh, where uh, 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 marijuana, the scourge of marijuana, is <laughs> infiltrating the high schools, and he's a high school principal trying to fight it. And then, uh, and then in one of the uh, other episodes, he's a drunk driver that uh, uh, winds up killing somebody. So, hey, you know, he, he had uh, variety. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. He, he was actually on quite a few dragnets. He was on 77 Sunset Strip, and I remember seeing him on Adam 12 on a bunch of those. Just so many oh, shows. Oh, he a really good Perry Mason. And then everybody was on Perry Mason. Gee, oh, yeah. That's become, a, a, to me, a treasure trove. I mean, you'll see Allison Hayes, Gloria Talbot, uh, Agar is in one of them. Yep. Jesus, uh, the list goes on. It's just, it's just amazing. That's cool. But I, that's what I like about uh, uh, video and then a DVD. It gives uh, fans a chance to catch up with some of this stuff and uh, see them uh, without all the annoying commercials and stuff, which just drive me buggy these days. But. Right. <laughs> yeah, I just love those old shows because you can look through them and say, "Hey, all of a sudden, whoa, whoa, look there!" You know, and that's the magic of uh, old stuff. Oh yeah, you know, it, it gives old timers like us memories. But for new fans uh, that are uh, discovering these actors for the first time, it's a perfect place to start looking for them. Oh yeah, absolutely, and it's funny too. Like stuff like Love Boat and Fantasy Island, which I think Robert Clark was also on both of those, or at least he was on Fantasy Island. You know, back in the day when those were first on, you're watching it going, wait a minute, I thought they were dead, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's what Agar kind of went through, especially after that uh, uh, one article in the in uh, Famous Monsters. Right. But, you know, that, that's uh, one of those things. So, uh, at least uh, he was around to put that rumor to rest. I, I was glad to see that. Yeah, yeah. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of... The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Prepare for a 
spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk. And the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster, Monster Kid Radio! Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. Shark Bites, Shark Bites podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network. Hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So we're going to have to do a whole show on, on Jocko's uh, Breakfast Club because there's just so many more people I want to ask you about. But I, I'd like to move on for a little bit here. So um, you mentioned that you worked for Fangoria and you also, in your intro I, that I did, we mentioned that you were a music critic and a film critic. So when you did, were you doing all those simultaneously? Like how was all the, the writing coming about for you? Well, I started out, uh, like say, I couldn't really find a, a decent job uh, after getting out of the, the military. So by 1980, I kind of got frustrated with just either building houses or laying carpet or delivering furniture. That's manual labor, and I didn't care for that too much. So uh, a friend of mine approached me uh, uh, saying that she had a job to write uh, uh, record reviews for a New Age magazine called The Transcender. So it was like a little paper out of Calabasas, uh, hippie land. <laughs> and and so uh, uh, she didn't know how to write. So I said, well, listen, I'll ghostwrite with you. Just give me a co-write credit on it. So uh, we, we started with that. And that's where I uh, started meeting uh, some of the uh, artists on Wyndham Hill. The Liz Story, uh, William Ackerman, Michael Hedges, uh, Scott Kasu, and uh, Shadow Facts, a really good uh, uh, jazz band that played really light new age on their albums but man they were one of the tightest fusion bands i ever heard live wow they just put it out so uh so it started there with the transcender and i think i worked there for five years and then uh bluffed my way under the valley press uh, uh, a local paper here uh they were just starting uh, uh, a thing in their paper called showcase which was to uh, uh literally to showcase the entertainment uh, around the valley and down below so uh, I, I said, hey, I can do that. 
And uh, the first film I ever uh, uh, reviewed as a film critic was Toby Hooper's Life Force, wow. which has still remained one of my favorite uh, films of I. Hooper. Nice. And, and so uh, uh, I, I stuck with that. Uh, I found myself wanting to review oddball films, and since they only let me review one film a week, which we all know that there are like dozens of films released now uh, on any weekly basis. Yeah. And and so uh, I would cover the offbeat things and uh, kind of got a reputation for that. And then the uh, uh, one of the other editors at the paper approached me to do a, a, a column on cult films. So I think that started in about 87. And uh, that's where I did, uh, I, I feel, some of my best work. And got to meet some incredible people in the meantime. One of my first professional interview. This was after I was with the, the Valley Press for about three months, uh, three years rather. Was I got to interview Herschel Gordon Lewis, and and here here I am. I'm going to the Variety Arts Center to meet him, and I had absolutely no idea. I knew his films, so that yeah. that helped me a lot. But I went in there and I was a little nervous. And uh, I sat down and he goes, you know, uh, uh, you're, you're something of a cult hero uh, in my neck of the woods. And he just smiles at me and goes, yeah, I kind of like the late James Dean. <laughs> I just, we both started busting up, and that just broke the ice. And after that, I had probably one of the best. Uh, it's still one of my favorite interviews. He was very, very gracious, and uh, uh, it was fun to hear him talk about these films, which he – figured we're, we're going to be lost. Uh, my friend Eric Caden, once again, I mentioned him earlier, uh, he and Jimmy Maislin were the guys who pulled all of Herschel's uh, uh, films out of bankruptcy. And oh, wow. because of them, we all get to see Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs, all of Herschel's catalog. And at that time, he thought they were gone. He, he had a reputation. He had just written a book on plate collecting, I swear. And like, he, I like, think you can still find it out there, but he and his wife wrote uh, what is considered one of the definitive books on plate collecting, you know, Norman Rockwell, that kind of stuff. He was an expert at it. Like those those decorative, you know, uh, plates that you would ordinarily eat off of, but it's got a, a picture on it and you hang it on your wall kind of plate? Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Collector plates. He was he was an astonishing expert at it, and and his book is really good. I went out and bought two copies of the damn thing when I found out about it. I said, no, no, the Godfather Gore writing a, a book about collector plates. I, I got to see it, and it's amazing. But uh, uh, that's kind of some of the things that I I lucked out in when I was working with the the Valley Press. Uh, I got invited to all of these screenings, and and on. Any given time, I would I would run into Paul Bartel all the time. Wow, a uh, director who I just I think he's one of the best American directors of his time, and just didn't have a, a good reputation for for movies. He kept wanting to make movies the way he wanted to, and the studios always wanted something else. And it's a shame they didn't recognize what a what a genius the man was. But I'd run into him. Uh, uh, I met Tony Scott at the uh, uh, screening at Top Gun. I uh, met Diane Keaton at the screening of her only uh, directorial film, uh, Heaven, huh. a documentary on Heaven. And uh, it was there where uh, somebody pecked me on the on the shoulder, and I turned around. It's Carol Kane. 
<laughs> from uh, a taxi. And yeah. she goes, would you please take a picture of me and my grandmother? <laughs> so there they're standing up against the wall, uh, taking a couple of pictures of Carol Kane and her grandma. So, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that just, it was one of the residuals of, of working, uh, how I was working. I'd get invited to these weird functions, and I'd always go to them because the, uh, the editor would hand those over to me like he was handing me a, a, a piece of toilet paper. So I goes, here, do you want to go to this? And I looked at it and go, hell yeah, I want to go to that. <laughs> so, uh, so I got to meet a lot of interesting people. That's awesome. And I went to the uh, eighth anniversary of Barnes and Barnes. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. It's Billy Mummy and his friend. Oh, yes. Uh, got together and did a musical duo, and they had a hit with a thing called Fish, Fish Heads. Heads. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'll tell you something that I discovered that I'd never heard before. That uh, film was directed by Bill Paxton. Really? Yeah, yeah. As a matter wow. of fact, he's he's in one of the videos uh, in drag. There's this huge female face with garish makeup on it, and that's <laughs> Bill Paxton. And I sat and talked with him for the most part after talking with Bill Mummy, and he was one of the nicest men on the planet. I mean, there was no actor ego there at all. He was very grateful. He had just gotten off of Aliens. Okay. So he, he was starting to get good press. He was grateful about it, and he was one of the most humble people I think I ever met. One of the nicest guys. Yeah. You know, and And... and uh, that was a, a magical night. I, I met uh, Dr. Demento there. Wow. Uh, Crispin Glover, who was dressed in this really <laughs> good-looking women's pantsuit that everybody was writing him about, but he looked good in it. You know, what the hell? <laughs> I mean, he was at a Barnes and Barnes show. You know, he had to dress right. up for that. And all of the members of Devo were there. And hiding in the corner was Mark Hamill. Wow. He and his family... It was at the Variety Arts Center. He and his family were dressed formally, and they were they missed their function. They they got the wrong address, <laughs> and so they're sitting at, at the back table, and nobody is noticing them because everybody's watching Barnes and Barnes and and Wild Man Fisher. And uh, my friend Bill Blair uh, felt sorry for him and went over and sat and chatted with them all night because they they were definitely looking like fish out of water you know we're in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, yeah so my friend bill saved luke skywalker you know? that's hilarious uh, yeah it's just uh and and that kind of stuff you just you can't you can't plan on or anything you go no. to these things and you go well i hope it's a good time and then you come back from it and go wow that was kind of magic right <laughs> that's awesome and, and, and that's that's the way my career uh, uh with the valley press was I was running into the craziest people. I met all of the Ed Wood people, the surviving ones. Right. At uh, my friend, uh, uh, once again, Eric Caden, held a, a Woodathon at the Hawaiian uh, Theater on the, uh, the boulevard. And uh, that's where I met Myla. Well, I knew Myla Nurmi uh, before. Paul Marco, Conrad Brooks, Valda right. Hansen, Harry Thomas, the old makeup man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, they were all there. Wow. That's, yeah, and for, and for those listening the, at home, I just the, want to say Myla Nurmi uh, was the one of the first horror TV hosts as Vampira. Oh yeah, and and she she always one of the things she always says is, "I'd sure like to thank Mr. Wood for giving me my moment of fame." Yeah, because uh, <laughs> uh, she she I think she was on for a year uh, before she was canceled because she was always, she was giving out the double entendres the way Elvira did, right. uh, later on. 
So, uh, uh, yeah, I have nothing but respect for her because she was a, she was a sweet lady. I liked her a lot. Nice. That's amazing. I just wanted real briefly to jump back to Herschel Gordon-Lewis for a split second just to tell oh, you, and you I, I'm pretty sure I told the story on the show before. Uh, when I was in college, I worked at a blockbuster video back in the late, um, the late 80s, early 90s. And yeah, you too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one time I switched the video because back then you had the video cassettes and they were in these cases that you had to open up and the cassette was inside the case. So I swapped out the Wizard of Oz with the Wizard of Gore. And <laughs> oh, no. Sure enough, the Wizard of Oz got rented. And I, w- I was just kind of grinning to myself. And then, of course, uh, I don't know, a day later or whatever, this guy comes in with the videotape in hand. And he's like, yeah, I was about to put this in the uh, VCR for my kids, and I, I realized it was the wrong movie. And I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, what movie? Oh, gee, sorry about that, sir. I'll get the right one for you. <laughs> <laughs> you devil. Uh, see, that's the fun thing about working in a video store. I, uh, when I was working with the Valley Press, you don't make money uh, writing for a local paper. Right. So I had to supplement my income. How did I do it? I worked at all of the video stores uh, locally here. Oh, there you and, go. and got a pretty good reputation for it because I knew a little bit about the history. But you can have adventures in a video store. There's no doubt about it. Uh, uh, certainly like the ones you had. <laughs> That's pretty subversive, uh, uh, <laughs> substituting a Wizard of Gore for the Wizard of Oz. That's that's impressive. <laughs> that's pretty. That's a good gag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I couldn't help myself. You know, it was. It, it just. Yeah. It was the joke that lent itself. You know. <laughs> you know. Well, see, working in a situation like that, you have to deal with uh, uh, the public. So uh, there's some people you know you can kind of pull stuff on, and others you can't. Or the little devil inside you goes, "Oh, what the heck? Let's try this." Right. And it sounds like that you got away with it, you know. Uh, it's a good thing that the guy didn't pop it in and, right. and show his kids the Wizard of Gore. <laughs> Probably would have traumatized them for life, or made them lifelong Herschel fans. You know? <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so around the same time you were working on Fangoria, you worked on Dumpster Piece Theater, right? I actually what that came about uh uh quite by accident when the, my last couple of years at Fango uh another editor had taken over I won't mention his name but everybody knows him and I just I just didn't get along with him as well because he kept rewriting my articles where Peter Orr would I mean he would just put everything verbatim whenever I submitted anything but uh, this other editor uh it it looked like he sat with a thesaurus and rewrote my entire articles to the point of where I, I didn't even understand or recognize them. Oh my God. And it kind of pissed me off. So at that point, I was going, well, I don't enjoy this. And then I, I go to a TV station to review some movies that were up for Best Picture that year. And I noticed on the desk of the uh, uh, owner that they wanted to make a, a, a show to showcase the movies they had in their library and I just picked up that uh, memo, and I took it to him and said, listen, I can do this without any experience in television or knowing anything about what I was going to do. But I said, oh, yeah, I can do this. And he goes, well, when can you have it ready? And I said, oh, give me a month or two. So he said, okay, you're set. So I panicked, <laughs> uh, got some of my good friends, Dean Matherly, like I mentioned before. Dean was a, a special effects artist who uh, specialized in uh, – uh, making uh, puppetry, things like that. So he made a rat puppet named Alfonso, <laughs> and he was supposed to be a radioactive mutant. And my friend Bill Blair made a, a, 
a radioactive carrot uh, uh, along the uh, the thing lines, you know, an intellectual right. carrot. He had big glasses. So these are the mutants that I was hanging around with in, in the dump and showing all of these bad movies. And the first four episodes, I don't think I would ever show to anybody because we just kind of sat there and wondering what we were going to do. <laughs> and so the, the camera guy points to us like, you're on. And they go, uh, uh, uh. And it's like, <laughs> that was a little embarrassing. But by the, the fourth show, uh, we showed Bloodlust, William Greffy's Bloodlust. Yeah. And uh, uh, Mike, Michael Berryman came in to, uh, well, for one thing, he wanted to do live TV. So he said, oh, let me do this. And so we brought him on as a guest because he uh, had just done Andy Lee's Meat Pies. So we could bring him on <laughs> as a guest talking about his movie and not have to worry about the, the SAG uh, right. getting on our butts. Uh, and during one commercial break, we were just getting ready to go back uh, from commercial, and Michael points to my cameraman, uh, Tony Tony Tortolano, and he goes, wait a minute, and he pulls his false teeth out and puts it in his pocket, and then turns around, and all of a sudden he's Larry from uh, uh, Andy Lee's Meat Pies, and he just starts improv riffing on the set. He picked up this little wooden bear, and he goes, hey, you know what this is? And everybody's just kind of looking at him, it's a bear. <laughs> and we just started busting up. And that was when we finally thought that we had something if we started to go weird and irrelevant. And and that's what we did after that. That's we just awesome. started joking and, and goofing off, bringing in the band sometimes or bringing in other bands because we could do it. And it turned into something it became kind of a local sensation uh, uh we're lucky we never got thrown off the air because i would openly swear <laughs> on the air when anything happened or or i could hear the producer in the background yelling at the sound man because he was always uh, uh goofing stuff up and and and, <laughs> and uh, he goes that's going over the air and they go oh okay but uh we, we got away with it that's uh, amazing we were late what time night. was this out of uh, we, the first shows went on from 10 to midnight and then they started putting us on a little bit later because of, uh, the content and some of the things we were doing. But at first we were going on before a program called the bargain barn, which it was just a bunch of local guys selling junk out of the back of a flatbed truck. <laughs> so, uh, that's how the station made their money and how we got our show was they were getting ready to be shut down because they had no local programming. So we came in at the right time, offered them this show, and we didn't have to pay for airtime, and we didn't charge them for anything. It was just a mutual, you give us the airtime, we'll give you a show. Right. And that gave them the legitimacy to run their station. Right. Uh, so we'd come on before Bargain Barn, and one night we showed they saved Hitler's brain. Oh. And uh, in the middle of the film, when Hitler's head shows up in the uh, jar, yeah, we <laughs> a friend of mine from Soda Effects they they passed their time by making extra things. They made Saddam Hussein kickball heads, <laughs> and I got one of those. So we put this Saddam Hussein head inside this jar, and then I played this uh, uh, kraut rock band, a Grossnit. Uh, with German lyrics uh, uh, while his head was moving like it was talking. And we just thought it was the funniest thing, and we got a lot of calls from it 
But the guys on Bargain Barn, they went out live after us. So as soon as we shut down, the first thing I hear is one of the cowboys over at Bargain Barn. I don't know what the hell that was, but I never want to see anything like that again. <laughs> and I just took that as, hey, yeah, we uh, we finally struck pay dirt. That's great. What town was this out of? Uh, Palmdale at first. Uh, Palmdale is about 50 miles north of L.A. on the 14 freeway. So it's the first uh, town you get when you get over the hill, they call it. So right. we were in Palmdale working out of a storefront. Wow. Uh, they had they had bought two stores in a strip mall, or, or a rented one. One was where they kept the bargain barn with all of the junk and all the crap they were selling, and the other was a little makeshift studio. And we just we threw a couch up against a wall. Uh, uh, this really talented artist named Randy Johnson painted us a really nice dumpster piece theater logo across it. Oh yeah, uh, it was it was really nice and everything. And the longer the show went on, the more junk showed up on the set like it was supposed to be a, uh, a dumpster. And after a while, the station kind of said, well, listen, guys, you're going to clean up after yourselves because uh, they were showing other programs uh, as well <laughs> using that same thing. So, uh, yeah, we couldn't litter the studio like we had hoped to keep it. <laughs> so, yeah. Right, right. And this was a, a, um, a low-power TV station, right? It wasn't cable access? Oh, oh yeah. It was, it, I'll tell you, it was below cable access. Uh, <laughs> it was it barely went out uh, from Palmdale. They sent their signal up to a, uh, a broadcasting tower on the hill, and if that tower went down, they were off the air for a week. Wow! Oh my God! Yeah, but because they were a local station, they they uh, were allowed a room on on the local cable. So that's where we got our uh, strength from was uh, the cable viewers. Oh, okay. And since we were live and we were giving out the the phone number. Uh, to the station, we had people call us in the middle of the show uh, saying how much they liked it, and we'd put them on the air sometimes. That's awesome. And sometimes they'd come and visit the, the uh, studio because they knew where it was. They'd say, sure, come on over. And they'd come over, and we'd throw them in front of the camera. You know, <laughs> it, was just, uh, it was like Steckler always said, free extras. I like free extras. <laughs> so cool. so uh, that, that's how it was, and it was, it was very, I, I would say very informal. Uh, we never wrote anything i might have made a couple of cryptic notes we never really thought of what we were doing we just we we're just going to present the movie and whatever happened happened and we get in trouble sometimes we showed killer from space one time and there was a, a part where there was a lull in the film so i went into the control room and put it on fast forward and it sped up the film <laughs> through about five five minutes and i hear i hear chuck uh, he was our producer and part of the station he goes what the hell are you guys doing in there you're not supposed to do that that's never supposed to go over there <laughs> and it was just okay well there's some rules we couldn't break <laughs> and one of them was making the station look bad so that's uh, funny that is so funny well we we got away with murder there's i mean there's absolutely no way uh, i don't think you could pull anything like that except for uh uh, maybe on cable access. Right, but right. But we were just, we were punks. We were anarchists at the time. And right. And we found the right venue at the right time. Who oh, absolutely. Knew? And you know what's funny? I was watching, I was watching you kill a Shrews episode the other day in preparation for this. And um, this was around, like you posted the website around the early 2000s, right? Yes. Okay. Well, so, the website was, was around since 94, but uh, some of the best stuff started getting on in 2000. 
uh, uh, when uh, our, our princess of promotion, uh, Nancy Matherly, uh, kept the pretty much kept the show alive while I was in Vegas uh, through the through that website. And when I came back uh, from Vegas and we did uh, a new run of shows, uh, we went out live a little bit, but then we started making pre-recorded shows when we actually tried to make a decent show. And that's where some of those shows are from. I think The Killer Shrews was one of them. Oh, okay. Yeah, because um, around that time I had been hosting horror movies as a character called Uncle Death, and I was developing something called the Fright Channel, which was the first horror TV channel. And, um, of course, you know, people stole my idea and then went on with it. But anyways, um, in watching the shows recently, I realized I had actually seen them before, and it was probably around that time when I was developing things and, you know, like I said, doing my own little bit of horror hosting. So it was really cool because I'm getting flashbacks. I'm going, I've seen this before, you know, Alfonso and, and you. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's just so crazy. It's like everything is coming full circle, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. The fan base we got after uh, Nancy put us on the Internet because we would start getting uh, letters from uh, oh, one fan from Lexington, Kentucky. And things like that. And I go, oh my God, you know, uh, this this is amazing. Where most of the uh, anything, any response we got was usually from people who took copies of the show and took it over the hill into L.A. to show some of their friends. And the the first thing out of their mouth was, why in the hell are they giving those guys a show? <laughs> you know, they're insane. And and it was like, well, of course, you know, we didn't know what we were doing, so it it, it had to look insane. Right, right. So from Dumpster Peace Theater, then, you sort of segued into filmmaking, doing sound editing. Can you tell us about the progress, you know, how that happened? Yeah, that was that was strange, and that, once again, serendipity. It just, it happened. I met Colin Mallett uh, at one of the video stores I worked at, and uh, he mentioned that his uncle was John Hall, the uh, matinee idol from the 40s. Oh, he wow. was in a lot of the Universal Technicolor films with uh, Maria Montez. Oh, yeah. So we started chatting, and, and I, I was familiar with John Hall, so uh, I, that kind of impressed him because he thought nobody remembered him. And I found out what he did is sound editing. He had just got done with Roger Rabbit. He cut the cartoon, the uh, Toontown reel on Roger Rabbit. Wow. And I thought, oh, well, hell, this is a guy to, to know. And eventually he just invited me. He said, hey, do you want to come to the studio and see how it's done? I go hell yes I would so uh, I would I would go in with him and uh, I got some hands-on experience and it was it would to me it was interesting because I always liked the the technology of filmmaking the I I edited home movies when I when I was a kid so I I still have my eight millimeter uh, uh, blunt spice editor and this nice. was like a new world sound editing at the time was still done. By the reel, there was no Avid or anything. You hooked up the reel of film on one reel. There was a bank with another reel that had a, a blank 35 millimeter film with a, a half inch stripe of magnetic film on it. So it was just like a large uh, recorder. So you would drop the recording and the playback head tapes physically on this, and that's how they edited the sound. So I I started getting hands-on experience on that, and I found it fascinating. Uh, the only thing I didn't do was join the union, so I never did get any screen credit. And uh, I'm glad I, I didn't join the union because that was hard work. It was really hard work. Yeah. 
I was yeah, the three that. guys I worked with, Colin, uh, Chuck Russell, and Louis Edelman, they're all gone. They didn't even get to enjoy their retirements. Uh, that job kills people. Yeah. Because post-production, the film is already booked in the theater. So it's like, here's three reels, get it done, you have a day and a half. Right. And it's like, whoa. Oh so people usually work a day and a half, two to three days in a row. So I just for my own edification, and I'm not sure if the listeners would really be this interested in it, but I'm fascinated. I've always, you know, I've worked with film. I've spliced film together myself and quite a few times, but I've never had to put the audio on. I've always wondered that part of filmmaking, like how do you get the audio onto the actual film? So you're saying you've got the reel of film, which is just the visual of what's yeah, been shot. Yeah, just the visual with maybe a little bit of the sound that uh, they recorded on set, which is usually replaced in what they call ADR, automatic dialogue re-recording. Right. So that's where they go in with the work print with the numbers on it, and the actors will redub their dialogue if necessary. Okay. So I got to see all of that process. But yeah, it was fascinating. And when you were mixing uh, stereo tracks and uh, and mixing like uh, sound effects on one channel and uh, voice on the other, we had two or three reels of the sound uh, uh, film with the magnetic stripe on it. And uh, at any given time, you would lift the head off of it so you couldn't hear it, so you could hear the sound effect you're dropping in. So you drop all of the effects on that, and then they make a composite print out of that, and then uh, look at it as a work print, and then start uh, building it up as the finished uh, product. It's very fascinating. If you've had hands-on film editing, it's the same thing except for you really don't you don't really cut too much. You just kind of like uh, uh, have things come in and and have things separate. It, it's it's hard to describe, but uh, it, it's like you let the channels flow together, and that's where uh, having these multi channels uh, was really fascinating to see because you could hear all of it build up. So by the time we got to see uh, the final product, it was like, wow, this is this is neat. And Mermaids was the first film that I actually had hands-on experience, where I actually got to lay in some sound effects and attended a Foley session and, and watched them readjust the sound and stuff. It was just, it was another world, and I was fascinated with it. So you're putting the sound onto one reel of 35-millimeter film, and then the visual is on another reel. So how are they combining the two onto one master reel? Is it, how are they doing uh, now that? that is done in a separate <laughs> laboratory and I didn't really see much of that. What what we did was we uh, we'd have the finished reel, and then the different sound reels. Now they'd be just labeled one, two, three, yeah. depending on if it was music effects or dialogue. And then they would take that all in, and then uh, do that through uh, probably during the optical printing phase when they're uh, uh, putting together the uh, the final uh, picture edit. Uh, from the uh, original negative, so you got a really nice clear picture, and then they record, they blend all of the sound together, and then put that on either through, uh, well, there was optical sound where you could actually see the soundtrack on the side. Uh, that gave way to uh, magnetic striping later on, and then uh, it seems like around the late 80s or 90s, they actually started putting the sound on uh, discs, 
and they would synchronize the sound disc with the reels. Hmm. And I thought that was fascinating, but I never got to see that process because right. I was out of it by then. That is very fascinating. And on the movies that you worked on, did you ever get to meet any of the actors that were in them? Very rare, because by that time, they're on another project. When we get stuff, uh, uh, it's by the time we get it, it's like, well, this has to be done. The director is usually in finishing the picture, so I never got to meet. I would have loved to met Richard Benjamin, because he was the director on Mermaids, but uh, he was he was working on the picture. Right. The sound team I was working on, they were called the A-team. That was uh, Louis Edelman and uh, Chuck Russell. And those guys, they got the projects. It was it was amazing, some of the films they got. And they, they won the Oscar for uh, Roger Rabbit. Right. So uh, uh, they were immensely talented. And uh, Chuck, uh, in particular, he was, he was kind of the, the hard guy. You know, he uh, if, if you didn't do it right, uh, he'd come down on you a little bit. But... Uh, uh, all in all, it was fascinating, and, and working with Colin was, well, he, he was your typical little uh, uh, Scotsman. Now, uh, uh, there's an old quote by Spike Milligan I'll use, because it applies here. He goes, uh, he could make good morning sound like an act of war, and it usually was. So, so uh, <laughs> Colin was a little feisty and sometimes hard to work with, but that's what those guys had to do. Everything had to be done so quick and so concise that it had to be just like uh, 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 just a normal reaction, just like it was an everyday thing, which it was to them. Watching them work was probably the best education I had for later when I started working with Steckler. I had hands-on experience uh, with picture editing with my home movies, sound editing. So when I got to Ray's and we started using a... Uh, uh, super VHS system to edit uh, some of the projects we had. I already knew it hands down. It was it was it was fun. I became Ray's uh, go-to uh, uh, editor. Wow. Yeah, we had some interesting projects which we'll discuss later. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're going to do a whole show on Ray Dennis Steckler. But can you give us a little bit about you know your friendship with him? Uh, that started in '88. Uh, I contacted him. It was funny. Uh, he advertised his uh, films, uh, Incredibly Strange Creatures, Thrill Killers, and Rat Think of Boo Boo came out on a label called Camp Video. And he advertised, uh, uh, had some advertising space in Fangoria. So I used the contact number, and it was the, the phone to his store. I didn't think I was going to get Ray. I thought I was going to get a number. And, he, and I just said, yes, I'd like to speak with Ray Steckler. And he goes, who's calling? And I said, well, I'm John Roberts from the Valley Press. And he goes, oh, okay. And, and we just struck up a friendship. And, and it, when I went to visit him, uh, one of the first thing he does when he gets visitors is his free extra thing. So he threw me in, in a movie that he was working on. I go to visit him in the summer in Vegas. It was 111 out. We were in the uh, parking lot of the Tropicana uh, filming uh, scenes where I'm trying to pick up a prostitute on uh, Tropicana and East <laughs> on Tropicana and <laughs> Vegas Strip. And, uh, and I'm just standing there like, a, like an oaf, you know, because I, you know, I hadn't really been in the front of the movie camera that much. Uh, I was used to doing live TV, but it was like, or I hadn't done the TV at the time, so it was like, Oh, geez, I don't know what to do. And it shows. <laughs> but that was what Ray did. You know, uh, 
Anybody who come and visit him wound up being in a film. That's great. That's great. And and I think our friendship blossomed because I was one of the few people at the time. I did a series. I think I did six articles on him altogether in the Valley Press, and I gave him more press in those two or three months than he had gotten in, in a number of years. So I went to visit him. He had all of these articles I had done uh, mounted and uh, on press board and everything hanging in his office. And I thought, well, damn, Ray, thanks. That's, that's kind. And, and we just headed off. He liked having a writer handy. So whenever I came to visit him, I would either write something for an interview or uh, contribute something. Uh, I got killed in one of his films, but it, uh, <laughs> it never got finished. So, uh, so I get killed in the preview trailer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yeah, it just it it came from just we had certain uh uh similar likes. Uh we liked old movies, but where I liked old science fiction and horror, he loved the old westerns. Okay. And he was an expert on them. I mean, uh if it was for Monogram or or, or PRC or any of those uh mascot or those right. old uh uh distributing companies, he knew them by heart. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, it was amazing. Uh, well, he was the one that told me that uh, uh, a director uh, with, uh, he was with Republic, but uh, uh, several others, uh, R.N. Bradbury, uh, the director was actually uh, Bob Steele's father. Oh, wow. Uh, who, who became, uh, Bob Steele's one of the big uh, cowboy stars of the 30s. Yeah. So instead of going by Robert uh, Bradbury Jr., he went by Bob Steele. And he was in a lot of his dad's early westerns. That's great. That's amazing. So, yeah, I found out crap like that. Uh, William Nolte, a guy who uh, wrote and later directed for a monogram, is uh, uh, Nick Nolte's father. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, so yeah, nepotism in the business. Yeah. Uh, that, that was how that was. <laughs> but uh, I would find all this stuff out. And, uh, and uh, Ray was, at the time I had met him, he was teaching classes at the UNLV, yes. uh, Cinema History and Technique, yep. and he was teaching his uh, students at the time about the Jean-Luc Godard and uh, uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, two directors that just, if you look at some of his films, you can see where they influenced him a little bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and the, and the cutting in Strange Creatures uh, is a perfect example, just some of the things he did. Uh, uh, but... Uh, Ray was an interesting fellow. Yeah, I definitely think he's one of those underrated directors. You know, you've got, as we mentioned, you've got your Herschel Gordon-Lewis. You've got um, Fred Olin Ray, who we just had on the show. And, you know, Fred's Ray Dennis kick, Stickler. <laughs> oh, he's awesome. Uh, Ray Dennis Stickler. You know, all these guys. And I think of all these cult directors, Ray is just now starting to get noticed by people, I think. Yeah, and that I'm, I'm glad to hear that and, and see it a little bit. Because it was it was funny, uh, he always saw the big articles on Ed Wood and, and Herschel and all these others. He goes, well, why why aren't people writing this stuff about me? I'm still alive. And and uh, I I kind of said one time, well, Ray, you're gonna have to die before you get press like this. And he kind of gave me a dirty look and, <laughs> and stuff. But essentially, that's how it is. Uh, it takes a while for a cult to catch up with with the star. And that's certainly in the case of Ray. And when you when you think Strange Creatures is the film where he had the biggest budget on, and that was thirty eight thousand dollars. Right. How on earth could it, I mean 
that's that's uh, a day's worth of uh, craft services these days. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, you know, so uh, so Ray made movies for next to nothing. Uh, one of his films, Las Vegas Serial Killer, it was the one he made for Camp Video. He made an original film if they would uh, release his those early three. So he made that film. They gave him fifteen thousand dollars to make this film. He brought the film in for eight grand and pocketed the rest. Wow. <laughs> yeah, shot it on 16 millimeters silent. So most of his, uh, he already had the film stock. So most of his cost was processing. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah. Hey, that's so he delivered the film right for there. eight grand. Who, who else could do that? Yeah. The exactly. spec, you know. And folks, we are going to do a whole show on uh, on uh, Ray Dennis Steckler, and we're going to do it for our special uh, Patreon listeners. Uh, but now I'm just going to continue here with John. And John, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Cult Film Corner, which is your Facebook group? Because I love it. Oh, thanks. I, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, it is essentially uh, a Facebook version of what I did with the Valley Press, uh, where I would dig up these uh, stills from either. I bought stills from Flory Ackerman, uh, Eric Caden, a few of the other guys uh, on Hollywood Boulevard. And I would have these uh, illustrations ready to, to write articles on. And when the uh, editor gave me the go-ahead on this, they were fascinated with some of the junk that I would uh, pick up, and especially the uh, the photos, because uh, I was covering things like uh, oh tarantula and, and the deadly mantis, things like that. And I have uh, production stills from it, and it, it fascinated them. And then later on, we found out that I had a pretty good audience for it, uh, which surprised me. But, you know, I grew up on television. That's where a lot of people discover, especially the movies from the, the 50s and 60s, my favorite era. And, and that's uh, through television. Thank goodness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, man. So, folks, um, today we learned that Herschel Gordon Lewis was a savant when it came to collectible plates. And I think that's awesome. Amazing, isn't it? It's, it's unbelievable. So, John, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I could go on for hours and hours, um, but we do have uh, we have run out of time here, and you're definitely coming back. So can you tell our listeners where they can find you online? Uh, well, I'm on Facebook. Uh, it's, it's under Cult Film Corner with a, a K and uh, for Cult and Corner because there's another Cult Film Corner out there with C's. But uh, I, since I've been using that uh, since the 80s, all I did was uh, change the change it to K, and there's been no problem. So just look for the guy with the bloody face uh, 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 on on the picture in the cult film corner, hosted by a junkyard John, which was my name on uh, uh, Dumpster Peace Theater, and uh, just uh, be prepared for some fun. I, I try to cover films that most people have either not heard of or don't want to hear of <laughs> and, and rather not hear of. So that's my job. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, on the show, John, and looking forward to talking to you soon. Well, thank you, Roger. I appreciate the time. I, I'm surprised people want to hear this stuff, but hey, <laughs> you never know until you find out. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we hope you enjoyed this fascinating dive into the life of a guy who's had an amazing career. 
please check out John's links, which will be in the show notes. Remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. And we are brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee so deadly, you won't go back. You can also visit our website at havenpodcast.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so please visit our YouTube page at youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.